Greetings and salutations, one and all. This is Jeffrey Wheatman, and I would like to welcome you to today's episode of Risk and Reels, where we talk about movies, and if we have time, maybe we'll talk about some cybersecurity. I am pleased and honored today to be joined by a very special guest, Deborah Wheatman. Uh, Deborah is the founder and president of Careers Done Right, which is a personal and professional branding company that focuses on senior executives all over the world. She also happens to be a close personal friend of mine, and she may or may not be my wife. We'll leave that for you all to figure out. Uh, welcome, Deborah. So nice to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jeffrey. Glad to be here, even though you are in the other room, but you know, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't tell anybody that. All right. Oh, I didn't great. say so, that. I didn't say that. <laughs> so we're going to start off as we always do with a movie question. Um, I have been thinking long and hard about, about what to ask you. And I think the question I'm going to ask you is what movie has the best soundtrack? Uh, excellent question. Um, so I'm, I'm probably not going to really answer your question in the way that you think, but, and I don't know if his songs have been in any movies currently. Okay. But I think the best soundtrack for a potential movie would be anything by Jack White. So I, again, I don't know, Jeffrey, if his, if his soundtrack, if his, if his music has been in any movies currently but if they aren't, they should be. So Jack White is my answer. All right. Well, so all of you can see behind me, I have a Jack White poster from when we saw him in, in Miami. And if you want to go see a great show, he's still doing touring. He's amazing on stage. Um, I do not know if, in fact, his songs have been in any movies, but I think that's a, a great answer. Um, I... I would be hard pressed to answer this with one particular movie, but I think generally speaking, I'm a huge fan of Quentin Tarantino movies from a musical perspective. Uh, I think he brings together really, really cool sort of um, disparate things. Uh, and, and I think that uh, his movies have some great soundtracks. Um, Jackie Brown had, had a great soundtrack, Pulp Fiction had some amazing songs. Um, so Let's let's talk a little bit about sort of what makes like good music, good music, good music for uh, for a movie. Um, you know, if you go back in history, right, black and white movies, that's all they were was music, right? So let's talk a little bit about why why music makes movies better or worse. I think a bad soundtrack can actually kill a good flick. Yeah, I mean, for me, and I agree with you, I love any Quentin Tarantino movie anyway. Um, and definitely the music adds a level of interest and intensity that I think is really interesting. And specifically related to that, if you think about Quentin Tarantino's movies, the music is very disparate. And it's interesting to hear some of the soundtracks that are chosen for the movies. They set an unusual and interesting tone. To your point, Jackie Brown and others, it's it's unusual when you when you first see the movie, when you listen to the soundtrack um, from any of his movies, you're like, oh wow. It it dawns upon you sort of like as you're going through it or, or afterwards, like what a great choice that was. And how do people actually come up with what should be included? And it's funny because one of my clients, that's her job. She actually picks the soundtrack, the music, 
four movies. Uh, and it's really an interesting kind of thing. And the process that she shared with me is very interesting as well for selecting um, the soundtrack for movies. Uh, maybe we have to get her on a future podcast, though. You'll have Perhaps. to have you put me in touch with her. Um, all right. Awesome. So uh, let's talk a little bit about cybersecurity. Uh, just to set some background and, and context, one of the things that we frequently hear is that companies can't find enough cybersecurity professionals. However, on the other side, what I see looking on, you know, social media and, and there's a bunch of people, uh, a bunch of subreddits and cybersecurity people t are telling us they can't find jobs, right? So that doesn't really make any sense to me. Companies can't find people and the people who want to work can't find jobs. Why, why do you think that might be? I do think that there is a big problem and a disconnect in the search paradigm, if you will. So for example, a lot of companies will put their positions online, even the senior positions, right? There are two sort of schools of thought. So they'll put one school is that they put these, these positions online and then people can apply for those opportunities. And I don't know, they'll get, let's just say a hundred job applications. Usually it's more, but let's just use a hundred as a round number. So they're relying on these systems that are imperfect to identify qualified candidates. And I know from experience, a lot of experience that people will apply. They have everything, everything that the position asks for, and still they are not picked up by the applicant tracking system. Why is that? So unless they know someone internally or they're a sleuth, and they're able to identify and then go after, pursue, and reach out to a person in the organization, preferably the hiring manager, who sometimes, and I've had this happen as well, will say, oh my gosh, you're the perfect fit for this job. Let me get you in for an interview. And that does happen and has happened. But the incidence of the times that that happens is not as great as the amount of time that the ATS, Applicant Tracking System, rejects candidates that are otherwise qualified. So that's part of the problem. The so let, second, me, let me just stop you because let me ask you a question because you mentioned ATS, Applicant Tracking Systems. I know what they are because I hear you talking to people all the time. I'm not sure everyone out there knows what that is. Can you give us a little bit more detail on, on what those systems sure. are before you move on to point two? Sorry to interrupt. So Applicant Tracking Systems are these Usually, well, they're, they're, sometimes they're small, uh, depending upon the size of the company, they could be very large and they are, it's software to screen candidates. So when you apply online, you usually will upload your resume into a system. It'll say, please upload your docx or PDF file here. Um, sometimes it'll say, please upload your cover letter here. Um, and then you upload those documents. And then what happens? Of course, then you get annoyed by the fact that what happens? You're also then prompted to fill in these little boxes with the same information. It's super frustrating and way annoying, time consuming, um, and nobody likes it. So that's what the applicant tracking system is. It's software designed to pull out candidates that have the key skills, the key words that align with the job description. So you might be wondering, well, why 
are people with the right skills not being picked up by the ATS systems? Well, because they're imperfect. That's why. And they don't do a great job in a lot of cases. A lot of them do not do a good job of looking at the source document and pulling out the keywords and saying, okay, we see that there is a 70% match here or an 80% match to this position. We're going to call this person or we're going to pass this person through the funnel to whomever is looking to hire, whether that's the HR person as the first stop or someone else. So that's what the applicant tracking systems are supposed to do. Uh, unfortunately, they are woefully inadequate at doing what they are designed to do. All right. So, so let me pull on that thread a little bit because in my previous role, I used to talk to a lot of hiring managers and they, I would review, I've reviewed a lot of job descriptions and you and I have had this conversation more than once about how poorly a lot of them are, are built and structured. So it seems to me that the ATSs are actually getting in the way and they're not actually facilitating finding the right candidates. Is that what you see? I think that that is a fair assessment. I think that they do get in the way. I think that they are preventing candidates from making it through the funnel to interviews, candidates that are qualified. I mean, how many people do you know or I know that apply for opportunities and hear nothing at all? Not even a thanks, but no thanks. Not we've received your resume, nothing. Not an automated response not a human response, just zip. That happens all the time. So the, the, so the job search should actually have a soundtrack so that you don't hear crickets when you send in your job description. So your, your exactly. It's really, the setup is just so poor and poorly executed. So the whole thing is bad. So setting aside the fact that ATSs don't do what they're supposed to do, because we clearly can't fix that problem today, um, I'd like to actually ask you two questions, and, and you can answer e either one first. So one, what would you suggest to hiring managers and hiring companies? And two, what would you suggest to people that are either looking to get into cybersecurity or are trying to get that next job? Okay, so for those managers, hiring managers looking to hire people, you know, and I recognize that this is a bit onerous. And the reason that these systems are in place is to try to alleviate some of the manual work that is required when looking for new people. But I do think it requires a level of engagement that they're not doing currently. And when people connect with you on your LinkedIn profile, let's just say, okay, and they say, hey, I'm interested in, you know, the XYZ role, whatever. And then they hear nothing. You're missing out on good people. It requires a little, you got to put a little skin in the game to get the right candidates. You've got to put a little skin in the game to have these conversations. And everybody is really good at talking about the value and importance of networking. Yet when it boils down to it, they don't do it. They don't do it. They rack up, you know, thousands and thousands of followers and whatnot, you know, on LinkedIn and do nothing with it. And that's not everybody. I'm not, I'm making more of a generalized statement because a lot of times, this is more often the case than not, I have found. If you put a little action 
into the situation, you'll absolutely find that you will be able to identify the right candidate and probably you'll be able to identify more than one. But it does take, you can't be passive about it. It requires that you're a little bit more action oriented. And just to delve into your second question, it requires the same thing on the other side. People want to, you know, and again, I'm generalizing here. I'm not saying this as, you know, an indictment of everybody looking for work or all hiring companies or all hiring managers. I'm not saying that at all. But people that are looking for work, they want to go online and they want to apply for opportunities. I can't tell you the amount of people that are senior people that instead of tapping into their network and having conversations with people and stepping out of their comfort zone, I get that it is uncomfortable for people to reach out to someone that they don't know. I understand that. But this is, it is required as part of your job search. You reach out to people you know, you reach out to people that you don't know, and you try to build up these relationships and this engagement so that when things do happen, you are there and you're ready to, you know, to coin a phrase, you're, you're ready to catch the pass, right? If you are simply taking your sort of show to the internet, you're going to be really frustrated. There's only four ways to look for work. And unless someone could come up with another idea for me, these are the only four ways. It's through the internet. It's direct to company. It's through your network and it's through recruiters. Okay. Those, those four choices, the network is the biggest piece of that puzzle. It is, they're not 25% of a whole. Okay. The network is the biggest part of that. And you need to tap into your network and you need to reach out to people and you need to step out of your comfort zone. I get everybody is not a type A personality and they're not just willing to just get on there and start reaching out to people they don't know. But looking for a job requires that. It requires doing all of those things with the, with recognizing that applying online is like literally looking for a needle in a haystack. You, trying to use recruiters and no shade, believe me, but let's face it, they don't do a good job of getting back to people. And I'm sure somebody is going to like write me a nasty gram on LinkedIn. Bring your best people, bring it. I'm telling you, I've seen it firsthand. People reach out to recruiters, nothing. Or the best is when I, lo I love when this happens. The recruiter will reach out to someone, the person will write back, and then there's silence. Okay, I'm sorry. Didn't you just reach out to me? I'm responding and now you're not getting back to me. And this is a common thing that happens and it is a problem. And this is why people, job seekers in particular, are so frustrated. This is why they're frustrated. That's the only reason why they're frustrated? Oh my gosh, no. We we're not even gonna get we don't have time, Jeffrey, to get into the oh, ghost. We have plenty, we got plenty of time. I have you for the next half an hour at least. Yes. We could certainly talk about ghosting. And again, I'm not suggesting that there's not a level of, you know, I don't want to use the word blame or fault or whatever on both sides because there is. Candidates ghost companies too. But I have found that the incidence of companies that ghost candidates is dramatically higher than than candidates that basically don't get back to companies. Well, now to be fair though, right? I mean, obviously I work in a small company now, but I used to work for a very big company as, as you well know. 
and they were getting thousands and thousands of, of resumes. Is, is it really fair for an expectation that they should get back to every single person, even if the person sends in a resume for a job they're totally not qualified for? That's an excellent question. And the answer is no. However, as part of these applicant tracking systems, there are automated, there are automated messages that can absolutely go out that says, thank you for applying. We've chosen to to move on to another candidate or thank you for sending your resume in, you know, the qualifications don't meet our needs, whatever. That's an easy thing to do versus what happens in a lot of cases, people will interview. I know people, I have clients who've interviewed for positions, 10 interviews. These people, you guys should be getting married at that point. There should be the dating phase is completely done. That is a marriage right there. If you are interviewing someone for 10 times, what is that? That's insane. And then you don't get back to them? Shame on you. That is an abysmal hiring process. And literally the people who executed that sort of, to call it a strategy is not true, um, that don't get back to someone after, you know, even three interviews. Rude. That's just rude. So you should be walking around with a bell going, shame, shame, shame. <laughs> yes. That and perhaps a horse whip, but you didn't hear that from me. All right. All right. Uh, so so let, let's talk a little bit about um, sort of that, that matching, right? Uh, we know job descriptions are typically not where they need to be. I mean, I've reviewed hundreds of them as in, in my previous role and invariably for security in particular, it's a laundry list of tools and technologies, right? And what I would say to hiring managers is, you're not gonna find anyone like this. They say, well, Bob or Mary, she they knew all that stuff. I said, yeah, but they didn't when they started, right? They learned all those things when they were in your employment. So everyone's looking for the purple squirrel, right? Which is that perfect candidate. Um, but I think on the flip side of that, sometimes, cause I, I've, you know, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn and I have people reaching out, Hey, can you help me? And I'm always willing to help. So I look at, at CVs and, and resumes and their laundry list of tools and, and, you know, tools that are, you know, 10 years out of, out of date. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit for the, the seeker, right? So the person who really, really wants to get that new security job, they've been doing a great job for three, four, five years. So they're not right out of college because that's a different problem altogether, you know, looking for people with 10 years experience and then paying them a buck 380. But how do you, how, how do you, how would you guide maybe some of the more technical viewers out there, they want to move to the next level. So so they, they have this laundry list of tools and technologies, but no, and I've heard you say this before, there's no accomplishments on here, right? There's no area where you indicated value. So so share some, some thoughts and, and wisdom on that for the seeker. So, this is a brand building exercise for people. And you, you want to a lot of time on your resume for space on your resume to include a couple of things, right? Of course, your achievements, the things that you've done that you're most proud of. And, and sometimes that takes, people need to think about that a little bit more deeply um, before they sort of put, you know, pen to paper or they start typing or whatever on their keyboard. You know, what is it that you've done? And, and I usually use the rule where I tell people, I write for them aspirationally, right? what they're capable of, which is based on 
what they've done in the past, and outcome-driven. To the extent that a job seeker can put examples where they have delivered an outcome for their for the potential opportunity, do that. Have you saved money? How much? It, or a percentage? Have you helped them make money? How much? Have you increased, you know, hiring or or eliminated something from the organization? The numbers that that quantitative definition is very important. And speaking specifically about technology people, they're impacting the business in so many ways that it would be inconceivable to me that they would not be able to come up with even an approximate for some of these things, okay? I also recommend that people, and this is for everybody, keep a list, a notebook, on your computer, whatever, an Excel sheet, of your achievements. I don't remember what I did yesterday. Okay. I'm not going to, I'm certainly not going to be able to come up with what I did and how much I saved uh, for something 10 years ago or five years ago, or even a year ago, which is why keeping a list and having like a running uh, list of stuff that you've done that you're proud of is so important. That way you can tailor your, your documents to the opportunity that you're applying for. It's critically important. Okay. I'll tell you what you didn't do yesterday. You didn't make dinner. Jeffrey, you know, I never make dinner. If it wasn't for <laughs> you, we would never eat around here. <laughs> let's be honest. Um, all right, good. So, so let's, let's shift gears a little bit. So, you know, uh, we work in the same house and I hear you uh, through the door in my office and, and I hear sometimes your frustration when you're talking to customers and clients who are not good at articulating what they do, right? So can you give me a couple of examples, clearly anonymized, about, about people who really are very accomplished and, and can't figure it out, can't explain it, can't articulate it? Yeah, they can't. You know, I have a lot of that, unfortunately. It's because they don't keep a good they don't have good hygiene when it comes to keeping notes about what they've done in their career. They just, a lot of people tell me, and I hear this constantly, people have always pursued me for my next opportunity. And while that is amazing, and I am so thrilled to hear that, now you're in a different situation. So now what? Now you need to be more aggressive and proactive about your search and you don't remember anything, which is why I tell people to write things down. There is one sort of silver lining, if you will, in terms of the internet. It is a tre treasure trove of information. I routinely use it to conduct research on my clients. And I find out all sorts of goodies that I can then leverage as part of writing for them. And they regularly will say to me, oh my God, where did you find this? It's through the value of research. And when, so for job seekers, if you don't know something about yourself, Google yourself, put your name in there and don't just go to the second page, really go deep. And you will find things that maybe will jog your memory or allow you to recollect something in your past that then might be good information 
for for developing your brand. Okay, excellent. Um, so what's um what's the most absurd request you've ever gotten from a, a client? Oh my goodness. Let's see. I've had people ask me to put degrees on their resume that they did not confer from schools that they never attended, not even the same state as them. Like, you know, I've had people ask me to look at other documents that I've written and pull information from someone else's resume that has no connection to this person or send them information from someone else's resume that they could then use for their own resume. Um, I've had people ask me to go to the LinkedIn profiles and they'll send me a list of people. <laughs> yes, they've, they like their LinkedIn profiles and they're like, you, can you pull content from this person's profile and use it for my, for my documents? No baby cakes. No, I cannot. <laughs> I cannot do that for you. <laughs> they call that lying. And that is not a good thing because, and I'm, I tell a lot of people this, do not lie. If you tell the truth, you won't have to remember what you lied about. Tell the truth. It'll be much easier for you, and especially just in terms of interviewing, if you ever find yourself, and I know a lot of people go to interviews where it's more of like, tell me about a time, right? That kind of interview style. They're asking you the same question over and over, but in different ways. It's easy to spot a lie during that type of interview, and it won't work out well for you in the end. If you're truthful, you you know what the truth is and you don't ever have to worry about it. We all have things in our background that, you know, sometimes you leave a position because you have initiated the, the choice to do so, right? You decided, hey, I'm done here and I don't really want to work here anymore or I'm moving on to a different opportunity. Fine. Sometimes, unfortunately, that choice is made for you and you find yourself in that, you know, gap where you just had a position, it ended, and now you're looking for work, and there is a stretch of time where you find yourself unemployed. It happens to everybody. I don't know a person alive in the working world that has not had that happen, either by their own hand or because their hand was forced by someone else. And we all have it. So, you know, to forgive those things, forgive yourself those things, and other people should be cognizant that at some point it was them, and if it hasn't been them, don't worry, it's coming. Okay, so let's role play a little bit. So I'm, I'm, you're interviewing me for this amazing job, and I really, really want this job badly. And um, I have a six month gap. I, I don't know, took off time to take care of my sick hamster. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> the interviewer is going to say, well, you, you were out of work for six months. The market's been insane. What, like what, what happened? How, how do you respond to those kinds of questions in, in an interview? So 
if you recall, we had a hamster, Gus. Remember him? He was so cute. Anyway, the- He's buried outside the front door, if I remember correctly. (laughs) He is. He is. He was so cute. Um, So I would simply say I had a personal matter that I had to address, and it took, you know, several months to correct, but- I did so, and now I'm ready to resume, you know, actively working, and the obstacle that was present before is no longer present. At the end of the day, people are not allowed to ask you questions of a personal nature, and honestly, six months is really, that's really not a gap, or maybe you took a sabbatical. Maybe you were doing something that you decided to take six months off. It's not a crime. People do it all the time, and honestly, I don't know that it warrants a deep dive into that question. And honest to God, even if it was a year, I would say, I mean, I've had people say to me that someone asked them, this is a woman who, Jeffrey, she had two children. She completed her undergraduate degree. I don't know when. It's been like, it's been a long time. She has a master's degree. And in her master's degree, she had like a three nine. And an interviewer asked her what happened. You know, her GPA was, I guess, not as great when she was an undergrad. It was like 3-2 or whatever, something not fabulous. What happened during your undergrad? Oh, my God. What now? That is like, what are you saying? Like, who cares? I literally have a master's degree while I'm working and I have a 3-9. Okay, so I had too much fun partying during my undergrad. To me, that's a red flag. This is not someone that should be interviewing, number one, they need training, first of all. Secondly, do you want to work for a person like that? To me, that's just a dumb question. Who cares what happened 20 years ago when I was an undergrad student at a party college? It's so irrelevant. I have a body of work now that illustrates my expertise in whatever. Um, And you're asking me about something that happened in 1990? The phone was stapled to the wall then. We didn't have the internet. Like, what are you talking about? It's a crazy stuff, like get some interview training and, you know, get some interview training, period. Okay. All right. Um, Somebody that does a lot of project work, is it okay to have a six-page resume? I am not a fan of a six-page resume. And I will tell you, and I know you've read a lot of interviews and I know people who read a lot of, read read a lot of resumes. Nobody wants to read a six-page resume. I mean, you're interesting, but honest to God, you're not that interesting. Like nobody's going to put that kind of time into that. It's like a mini tome. Your resume should not be war and peace. It should be a high level, you know, with some detail, of course, because we want the achievements in there. Look at what your capabilities are. A six page resume is just indicative of someone unable to see the forest through the trees. They can't figure out what's the most important and what they should focus on. So they'll just, they'll just throw in everything. Um, it's not, it's not good. It's not productive. It doesn't help you. It doesn't help you get a job. It doesn't help you get interviews. It just makes you look like almost you, A, you either don't know what you want or B, you're unable to define the things that are the most compelling in your background that set you apart. All right. Awesome. So uh, just before we jumped on for, for this podcast recording, I was actually writing a blog. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I talk to people about and advise people on and have for a long time is going in front of the board of directors. 
So one of the things that I have shared with a lot of people, you know, you do a lot of work with people looking for board roles and cybersecurity is a big board initiative. You know, there's surveys all over, you know, it's one of the top five things. So if any of our listeners out there decide they want to do board work and they have a great body, a great background of, in, in cybersecurity, what are some tips you could give them to get that, that board role and, and get really into that, that real power position? Sure, and it's a great question. If you are not on a board already, and what I'm talking about here is a nonprofit board because they're easier to get onto, not always, um, but they're a little bit easier to get onto than a paid board, start there. Everybody has to start somewhere. And board work, whether it's nonprofit or philanthropic or paid, you start, you, everybody starts somewhere. And because board work informs other board work, if you start with a nonprofit board and then work your way into paid board work, you'll find the value in that. One, you're doing something for an organization that has probably a good cause, right? So that's got to make you feel good. Secondly, if they have committees on those nonprofit boards, get on a committee. Maybe you are on the, you know, I don't know, CEO hiring committee or, or one of those types of committees, do that because again, it will inform other board service and it makes a difference. Okay. And then, you know, part of the nonprofit board work that you're, you're going to be meeting a lot of people and some, some of whom will be on paid boards. This is the value. It's the networking. It's the, it's who, you know, right? And who you get attached to as part of that effort. Because board work is not, you're not going to get board work by applying online. That's not going to happen. Board work is going to come from your network, from who you know, and from someone saying, hey, Jeffrey, I met so-and-so. You should speak to that person because she's on this board. And I think you two would make, there's a good connection there. That's how you're going to get board placement, paid board placement. And the nonprofit world is a great place to start. And then as you build your board resume, which is very different, it's different from your traditional resume, you're going to highlight the board service at the top. Again, because board service informs other board service, even your nonprofit board work, your philanthropic board work, that will come at the top as well as part of informing that, the rest of that story. All right, awesome. So um, time flies when you're having fun and we are out of time, unfortunately. So let's just do a quick recap. So um, Deborah loves Jack White, even though we don't know that his music has been in any movies. Uh, Quentin Tarantino does a good job with, uh, with, with creating musical soundtracks. Um, black and white movies have good sound. Uh, don't lie on your resume, and if you want to be on a board, you should do some nonprofit work first. Anything else? I think that's about it. And be patient in your job search. It does take time. I recognize that's easier said than done, but it does require a level of patience that I know I can speak for myself. I do not have, and I know, Jeffrey, you would echo that because I am very impatient. Yes, but it does require patience and perseverance. All right. All right. Excellent. Thanks, Deb, for joining us. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Um, this has been another episode of Risk and Reels with your host, Jeffrey Wheatman. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay secure.
Thank you for listening to Risk and Reels, a cybersecurity podcast. Be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to riveting 30-minute conversation about movies and cybersecurity. Jeffrey will be on the road this year at some of the industry's biggest events, but you can always find him on LinkedIn and Twitter at Jeffrey Wheatman. This podcast is powered by Blackkite, the only security rating service to deliver the highest quality intelligence to help organizations make better risk decisions.